Hi, everybody. I'm Elaine. And I'm Juliana. And welcome to Woves and Wonders. Of women, witches, and wives. Elaine, do you want to tell them a little bit about what to expect from this podcast? Yeah. So what Juliana and I were kind of imagining with this podcast was that this would be a place where we could explore different historical events and specifically look at women who played a role in those historical events and really focus on telling their stories as a narrative, so picking out specific women who had something to do with whatever we're talking about that week and really focusing on telling their story in the context of what was going on so exactly and hopefully have a little fun along the way and just talk about our lives a little bit and what it's like just being a woman in this wonderful world we live in yeah absolutely because we both identify as women so yes we can we can talk a little bit about it (laughs) yeah a little bit we are you know kind of familiar with what it's like to be a woman (laughs) with that being said do we want to jump into our first Let's do it. So since it is fall spooky season, we want to talk a little bit about the Salem witch trials. Yeah. And the witchy, the whole witchy era in general. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So to jump into a few of the specifics, I know we both kind of looked into some different background of kind of the witch trials as a whole, Mm -hmm. but we're talking about the year 1992 to mid-1693. So this was about a year and a half total, which I definitely thought it was a much longer period of time. I did too. And I also think it's important to talk about like what the culture was like at that time because it was very like Puritan early days. And um, just a couple notes on like the Puritans. I think I, I saw this like hierarchy of crimes um, of the Puritans and I just feel like it's worth noting because I think it, it provides some context so and I also want to hear your opinion on this Elaine so the highest crime you can commit commit as a Puritan is idolatry adultery no idolatry like viewing something mean? viewing something else like as a god whether it's an object oh. another person basically anything that's not god that you view as god is like the worst possible crime you can commit as so the a way i think about my dog i would be yes like, you'd be you'd be gone you're, you're a goner yeah okay oh number two is witchcraft so okay. setting the scene they were very against witchcraft um however the next ones i feel like are are kind of worse so number three is blasphemy okay <laughs> four is murder so four is murder yes so blasphemy is worse than murder according to the puritans number five is poisoning again to me that that could be clumped with murder but i guess you don't necessarily have to die if you poison someone but i guess interesting and yeah number six is bestiality so that's where we're at in the order of of crimes as a puritan well that's good to know i think it's interesting that they leave a lot out there that I would I would say um, should maybe be included in a list of crimes, but I think so too. That idolatry, or I don't know how you say. I think it's idolatry. I don't know. I idolatry. learned what it meant okay. this morning. So okay, yeah. yeah, I haven't heard that word before. Like I know, like thinking of things as an idol. Yeah, I haven't heard the word for it, but that's very interesting. Yeah, but yeah, but the so... fact that witchcraft number two really. Yeah. tells you what we're dealing with here yeah and just like the culture of the puritans at the time was very like strict following a really strict set of rules and also just life in salem at that time was not great people were starving to death and disease were running rampant as well as just like tension with local native americans and nearby french settlers so like tension and fighting was pretty much constant and the winter of 1692 <laughs> said it right yes was like one of the worst on records for most of these people within their lifetime. So just before even the trials started, tensions were really high and people were like not really enjoying life or living very happily. So yeah, I definitely added to it. Yeah, for sure. And I read some similar things, especially that previous winter. So the end of 1691 (laughs) and the beginning of 1692, there was a big smallpox epidemic that broke out. And a lot of people died due to smallpox. Mm -hmm. And then as you were talking about different attacks, even from different colonial communities at Mm -hmm. the time, there was a lot of like intercolonial 
tension there. And so people were facing attacks from their neighbors, as well as Indigenous communities that were fighting back from their land being colonized, which fair enough. (laughs) Um, and, And yeah, I think you're totally right that it kind of just reached a boiling point where the community didn't have the resources to support everybody in it. Yeah. And they really took it out on some of the most impoverished women at the time. And Absolutely. Yeah. And women who had been widowed were often a focus mm-hmm. of the witch trials, women who lived on their own and who didn't have necessarily the money or means to support themselves either. Yeah. So yeah, thought it was really interesting to see. No, definitely. Which groups of people they really targeted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People that were like kind of outcasts typically. And it's just, I think with all of those factors, they're just like, people didn't trust their neighbors, which I think added to the whole hysteria of it all and kind of pushing these people forth as like witches to blame them and kind of scapegoating. So I think it's also just such an interesting example of group mindset and hysteria sure. and just how, yeah, environment, environmental factors can impact that. I think it's just really interesting yeah I think you're totally right and yeah that group hysteria is crazy we've seen it multiple times throughout history but I think this is one of the most crystallized examples of how Mm -hmm. just listening to something one person says and having the whole group react that way and then all of a sudden you end up killing 20 people in a year yeah it's insane (laughs) you can just kind of from here I think yeah do you want to go into to your story yeah a little bit about this this whole story and where this started um so I'm going to be telling the story today about a woman named Tatuba who was really the woman who kicked off some of this hysteria that we were talking about and some of really provided a lot of the evidence that people used in future trials after hers to accuse and hang some of these women. So let's jump into it a little bit. This is a kind of a difficult story to tell because as we said, we're talking about the 1600s here. The records aren't really there for a lot of things like her birth records or, you know, where where the story really started. And the ones that are there are not necessarily complete. But even as I was doing this research, I felt like this was an important story to tell because there was a lot that was unique about Tatuba and her situation during the witch trials. And the way her trial went in general kind of was unique, I think, to a lot of the other women that were tried at the time. So I I picked this one out because it felt like it was important to tell for a lot of different reasons. As I said, we don't really know when or where she was born. Based on the records we do have, it's very clear that she was a woman of color, most likely an indigenous Central American woman, based on just kind of what was told about her accent, her complexion, all of that kind of stuff that we do have record of. And the first formal record for her starts when she was captured and sold into slavery as a child. As we know, the 1600s in colonial America saw a massive rise in slavery, and the area of the West Indies in particular became one of the most important centers of the North American slave trade. So this story really starts with when she was sold into slavery, and then in the kind of mid-1600s, again, the dates aren't 100% here, But Reverend Samuel Parris, who is going to come into the story later uh, as an important figure here, before he was a reverend, he was in the West Indies, he was in Barbados specifically, and he, that was where he purchased, again, this is language that we used at the time because it was 1600s and slavery was still legal here, but he purchased Tatuba and then in 1680, he brought her to Massachusetts And by all estimates, she was a teenager at the time. So we can assume that she was born sometime in the 1660s, maybe late 1650s. We're not sure on that, but that's kind of the best guess that historians have come up with based on the age that she was when she was brought to Massachusetts. And in her personal life, it it is thought, assumed, unclear exactly on, um, again, there's no marriage records, there's no records like this, so... We're not sure how this word of mouth traveled, but it's thought that she married a man in Massachusetts who was also enslaved. His name was John Indian, and they had a daughter together named Violet. And that's kind of all we know about her personal life um, there when she was when she was a slave on Reverend Paris's land. The records aren't really there. We don't know what happened to her daughter. We don't know where she again slavery is it's really hard sometimes to track what happens to people if they were sold to other people if they were 
moved around other places. So we're not really sure what happened to her husband or her daughter, but we do know a little bit more about what happened to Tituba as this as we go forward here. Um, so as I said, as a slave at the Paris's home, Tituba cared for both of her children, both of the children. Abigail Paris was Reverend Paris's daughter, and then Betty Paris was the other one. And there's a couple of records that say Betty had a different last name and maybe was part of a different family. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm like, I saw it as Abig- it was Abigail Williams and she was like the cousin of Betty and like the, okay. of, but I again I also saw like multiple different names and dates and I think whatever <laughs> yeah I saw it written a few different ways for both yeah. of them I saw yeah, no, both me of too. them having yeah. different last names so yeah not sure but they both lived on the property mm-hmm. and Tituba cared for both of them fed them clothed them ate with them slept in the same room as them to care for them throughout the night And at the start of all of this in January of 1692, Betty was nine and Abigail was 11. So just for a little more context about who kicked all of this off, um, we're talking about a nine and 11 year old. I think what's so interesting about the Charles that I think we'll both kind of talk about is the accusers that was accusing these women of witchcraft and men too. There was some men that were accused and subsequently killed. Um, But they're all young women and girls aged nine to 20. Which is so insane to me because at what other time in history have people so strongly believed young girls like that? Yeah, it's just like those are the accusations that all of these are based off of, which to me is really crazy. I agree. You're totally right. And most of the time in history, we see the stories of young women or any women just being written off completely. Yeah. Not being being not believed, being just mm-hmm. like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a silly little girl. Like, yeah. But yeah, so Betty and Abigail were 9 and 11. The story goes that in January of 1692 the Paris girls or the Paris and Williams girls had been playing a fortune telling game where you take an egg white and drop it into a glass of water to see what shapes appear. And then whatever shapes come up would tell you about your future, which is now a game that I want to try. I was about to say, should we try it after this? (laughs) I want to know what my future holds based on the egg whites. Yeah. And I'm not sure, like they're egg whites. So I'm not positive what kind of shapes would even come out of that. We got to try. <laughs> Just Stay <so> tuned. <laughs> Supposedly, as they were playing this quote unquote fortune telling game, one of the girls saw a coffin in the glass in the egg whites. And after that, they began barking like dogs, babbling, crying hysterically, screaming, all of this kind of like what they call what the Puritans called throwing fits. Even though Tatuba was not part of this fortune telling game was not part of these attempts she did make an attempt to cure them of this apparent bewitching that was going on so the story she told was that the girls had grabbed an egg like ran off into the corner and was play- were playing these games by themselves but once they started having all of these kind of possession i guess attributes she tried to attempt to cure them and so she baked them what's called a witch cake and it's made of rye and urine, which is just not a recipe that I will be asking for anytime soon. I don't know about you. No, I, I know. I was looking at like different ways that they're proving witch and I saw the witch cake things and who, who I want to know whose thought was that. It was like, that is how we're going to, we're going to figure out who these witches are is making up a, key, a pea cake. Yeah, I don't know. I just never thought of urine as an ingredient. <laughs> I guess in 1692, you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do. And also, it's just rye and urine, which makes it sound more like a bread. Yeah, and like, not really cakey, but I mean, no. I don't really know how much like sugar they had back then. So That's true. Why would you waste it on a pea cake? It's <laughs> a great point, actually. But yeah, so even if I do ever run into a witch someday, I don't think that this is a recipe that I will be attempting to make. But it's okay. It is what it is. It's the 1600s. And it was supposed to help with possession. That day, when after Tatuba did this and the reverend came home and found out Tatuba had done this, he was extremely angry. And there were other records that suggest that he was also angry with Tatuba previously for not engaging in the very early ad- attempts to identify the witches when the girls began to exhibit these behaviors so it had been going on for a couple days and reverend paris was trying to figure out who was bewitching these girls what was going on so he started making different accusations trying to identify this and tatuba didn't engage basically she just said not my circus not my monkeys i don't know and so yeah records suggest that he was already angry about that and then when he came home and found out that she had baked the girls this witch cake it kind of sent him over the edge 
And so he started to beat her until she confessed that witchcraft was the reason behind the girl's behavior, which, okay, I we all know that you're not necessarily going to get an honest confession out of someone when you're beating them until they confess. If you're sitting there beating me up saying I won't stop until you tell me that this is what's going on. Yeah. And I think that was kind of, at least based on my research, the trend where it's like you can either confess and like repent or if you maintain your innocence, you basically are just like signing your death wish. Logic is just not there. Yeah, the logic is not one. there. I don't know what the Puritans were on, but yeah, not the best mindset. Yeah, honestly, I, they were on like lead poisoning and scurvy. So yeah. Okay. I also I don't know if you'll say this, but I did see. I was reading this story and I saw something that I was like, I thought it was so funny because I I saw that they had like a doctor come and check them out, but when like they were acting yeah. weird, and I saw like a record where it was like there was only one doctor in Salem at that time who might have been able to read but probably could not write (laughs) so just to give you like a reference of this doctor of like the level of intelligence of this time as well I just thought that was so funny no you're totally right and I had that written down too that the local doctor diagnosed them all with being bewitched yeah bewitched like not even the best diagnosis no (laughs) I also wonder how much of this is true like it said like the girls were barking and screaming and having fits and contorting themselves and part of me is like thinks a did they actually have a condition like epilepsy or something where they were having seizures and that could totally be disconcerting if you don't know what's going on or b were they just nine and eleven and they were pretending to be dogs or something and barking at each other or I don't know just like playing yeah and it came out that way I don't know I know I was reading a couple theories um because it it wasn't just these girls right like after more girls started acting acting like this and I saw like one of the possible explanations was like um there's a certain fungus like in wheat or maybe it might have been rye or whatever it was something that was like very common in that area and it causes like brain swelling and it causes convulsions odd behaviors and stuff like that so that was a possible explanation I also saw more of a conspiracy theory that um the Paris guy I forget his first name um but that was he wanted to basically like start a hysteria so he could control and him being like the church could be like we have the devil in our town and it's up to us to get them all out and like kind of have this religious cleanse element to it too so I feel like both of those could be likely (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I read that too about Samuel, which also wouldn't surprise me. Anyway, so yeah, so as you said, it wasn't just these two girls, right? And um, and so as after this started, other girls started having these weird behaviors. Anne Putnam Jr. was another one. She was 12 at the time. And she really started having all these. And her mom, Anne Putnam Sr., became one of the foremost ladies who was just out there accusing anybody of witchcraft and a lot of people have theories that she, she had specific vendettas against people and she was using this opportunity to just throw their names into the witchcraft bucket which is also nuts yeah i would also believe that because it was pretty much just anyone that was kind of weird or an outcast you'd have a finger point at you and they'd find reasons and people would come forward with testimony so it really like could have been anyone and it so i totally believe that someone just like had vendettas against these particular women yeah yeah so anyway to jump back to tatuba's story so she was being beaten by samuel paris to confess to witchcraft and so she did and she told him that she had been told to serve the devil and that she and the girls rode on sticks in the sky and that a black dog had told her to hurt the children which this is the very first iteration of this i like that she told reverend paris as he was beating her and her story really changes up a lot throughout the next couple months as she goes to trial and all of this which personally makes me believe it less and believe that like she was under extreme duress at the time and she told them what she thought they wanted to hear to try and save her life which I totally understand and so yeah so this first confession really kicked off the start of the witch hysteria in Salem and Tatuba was officially charged with two other women who the girls had directly accused and those were Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. So those were the first three women that these two girls and Ann Putnam Jr. had directly accused 
of bewitching them. I thought this was really interesting, but I read a few different articles that said from different historians that agreed that Tatuba was probably not expecting to be accused of witchcraft at all. Because as we said, most of the people who had been accused of witchcraft, and this wasn't the first round of witchcraft accusations happening in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. There was this years before other women had been accused of witchcraft and there was other trials that happened as well. Um, These are kind of the most famous ones. But historically, all the women who were being accused in Puritan New England were deviants, widows, old women who are mean, often gossipy older women, and often those who were often those that prominent members of the community had something against, which was kind of what we were just talking about, that most of the women accused were odd in some way or off in some way. And Tatuba was not this. She was a slave in Puritan New England, but she was very much a member of the household, the Paris household, and a member of the community. And she was officially accused at this point, along with Sarah Good, who was a beggar and looked down on for her financial instability, and Sarah Osborne, who was involved in a land dispute with her children over her former husband's land and had also been revealed to be in an affair with an indentured servant. So people that the community were not hyped about having around. And all I think, as we said, all three women were just really easy to scapegoat for quote-unquote witch-like behaviors. But Tatuba was the only one of these three who made a full confession at her trial to witchcraft. On March 1st of 1692, she appeared before the whole court in Salem, and initially she denied any involvement in witchcraft, which again, her first instinct was to say, I didn't do this. I didn't have anything to do with this. But as the courthouse interrogation continued, she changed her story. And different historians have suggested that as a woman of color standing in front of this all-white male panel of judges, she felt that she could not easily get away with being defiant against them. And the other two women who were accused at the same time were both white women and had a much easier time staying defiant. But as a slave and a woman of color, she probably felt that it was unlikely her word was to be believed if she did stay defiant and she would probably be executed more quickly if they thought she was lying. So she told this story instead. And she told her persecutors that it was the devil who had been torturing the girls. She said she had seen a man in a dark coat with white hair who had traveled from Boston, which I don't know how she knew that, but it is what it is. Big city, I guess. The devil lives in the city. And he had ordered Tatuba to hurt the children. She then said that she had seen a hog, a great black dog, a red cat, a black cat, a yellow bird, and a hairy creature that walked on two legs. And then another animal had turned up that she didn't know what it was called and couldn't describe it super well, but it had wings, two long legs, and a head like a woman. And then this man also had a canary. <laughs> just a canary to top it all off. <laughs> just to really throw, just, throw just the, a little, the just, top. Yeah, just literally the cherry on top, just a little canary. So not really sure what was going on here. Don't know what to believe at this point in time, how many animals were around. But this part of the testimony was what kind of led to these, I don't know how much you read about the specters or the spectral testimony that people were like, oh, I saw that a specter of a cat and that is that person's specter come to life. And it was just wild shit. I don't really know what was going on with them. But yeah, her seeing all these animals together sort of led into this, this spectral testimony that comes into play in many other of the Salem Witch Trials later. And her testimony went on for a long time. And as I said, is the best documented part of her entire story. On that Tuesday alone of March 1st, she answered over 39 questions. And she spent the next few days confirming her story over and over in trials. And as I said, this part of her story is the only part that is really continuously documented over and over when talking about the Salem Witch Trials. So yeah, I'm not going to go into every detail, but needless to say, it was Tatuba's testimony here that really launched the witch trials into what they became. She confirmed everyone's suspicions. She doubled the suspect list in just a couple of days. She implicated multiple women in the town. She answered every single question she was asked without hesitating or flinching or denying which further confirmed everyone's suspicions of witchcraft in the town. And I think what's a crazy part of this part of the story is that still nobody really knows what her motivation was. 
maybe she actually believed it. Maybe she had actually experienced this. Like she was having some hallucinations of some kind. Maybe she thought she telling this story would protect her. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that is weird. I part of me almost wants to say like someone was forcing her to say all this stuff yeah. because it's it's just odd that she didn't like hesitate and had an answer for everything. So I feel like even right. if say she, you know, I don't think she was guilty of witchcraft, but yeah, so even <laughs> if she was, like, you wouldn't be able to like say any answer without hesitating. I feel like you'd at least have to right. think some things through. That just doesn't yeah. seem like a truthful answer if you're shooting off answers that quickly for sure and like yeah. there's probably some things you wouldn't know even if you yeah were practicing yeah it, it just really feels like someone was feeding her very specific information yeah and part of me wonders too because she was a slave in reverend paris's household and as you said before he was all about getting the church some more power yeah. makes him look pretty guilty <laughs> yeah right how's those suspicions about samuel over there but either way if it was the last version of this that she thought that telling the story would protect her in some way, she was kind of right. Um, she was put in prison and Reverend Paris refused to pay her bail because obviously he was furious that all of this was going on at his house. But because he, quote unquote, owned her at the time, he was the only person who could bail her out. Imagine like it was him feeding her information and he's still like, nah, you got to stay in prison. No, I'm not. I yeah, it will look so bad if I bail you out. You're <laughs> sucks right? to be you. Yeah, I don't know. But she was never hanged or executed in any way. She st- she sat in jail for over a year throughout the duration of the rest of the witch trials. She saw people coming and going, people being executed, people being accused in large part because of what she had testified to, which I can't imagine the kind of mental emotional toll that would take on you. Yeah. No, that would be insane. Like all these names that you're listing out and you see these people come through and sit in prison with you and then see them walk off to their execution and knowing you had a part to play in that. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine. And Even especially if she was like forced to do it. Like I the toll yeah. that must have taken on her. Absolutely. I think especially if she was being forced to do it. Because yeah. it wasn't her choice at all. It wasn't anything she could do either because she was not she was in such a vulnerable position as a person Mm -hmm. in this time period that what was she gonna do yeah but yeah and as we said before they were really big into this admit and repent sort of situation here and so she stayed in prison because she had told the truth um and after the hysteria died down and people began to recognize what they were doing was wrong In 1693, she was released from prison. And at the time, it was really interesting reading about this. Most of the women who were released at the end of the trials, um, who had been in prison for a significant amount of time and stayed alive and weren't executed, were paid some sort of restitution for being in prison, which, like, we don't even do now in the U.S. Thing that if you're, like, found to be wrongly convicted and you're in prison, they'll, like, pay you, like, a good amount of money. If it's been like you a have long to time sue for it, though, yeah, like some people that there was um, restitution for like that's something I'll talk about in my story that both this woman and her husband were listed on a bill and given their family was given some restitution. Yeah, and some there are some cases where if it's a really highly publicized trial or something like that, as part of the settlement for your acquittal, they'll agree to pay you some restitution. Yeah. But a lot of people have to, like, independently sue for restitution yeah. from the uh, state that's for so interesting. wrongful imprisonment. But they were just, like, just yeah, given some money for being – I mean, honestly, as they should. Yeah. If you're no. in prison for being a quote-unquote witch and then they're like, actually, sorry, we were just, like, in a silly, goofy mood and now we're releasing you. <laughs> You should get some money for that, I would say. 100%. Even now, I think if they if the court admits that they wrongfully imprisoned you, they should pay you for all of that time. I think so, too. So most of these women who were released were paid restitution or their families were paid later if they were executed, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of them were paid for their property or belongings that had been taken away from them while they, while they were jailed. But Tatuva had been a slave before she was imprisoned, so she owned nothing. She wasn't allowed to own land. She wasn't allowed to own property. And they didn't pay her anything. They didn't give her any restitution. And when she was released from prison, she was freed from slavery. But that's it. That's like the record kind of just disappears after that. 
No one knows what happened to her. Yeah, they have a record of her being released, and they have a record that they paid her no restitution and that she was now freed. Mm -hmm. But she she ran away and got far away from all these people. And changed her name. But, yeah, yeah, she just disappears from history after that. We don't know if she moved, if she left, if she was able to be some sort of successful, if she found her daughter. Yeah. we don't know what happened. And you don't know why she was, like, freed from slavery? Because, I mean, that wasn't – during that time, it wasn't common, was it? No, but I think a big part of it was that was nobody just... wanted someone who had admitted to being a witch, probably. Yeah, good point. Like, good Samuel point. They were like, yeah. we don't want her in our house. Like, free her. Right. Like, Dang. Samuel Paris didn't want her back. He was like, she cannot come back here. Wow. And – I I would just I mean again this is my own assumption but I would just kind of assume that it had something to do with the fact that she told this whole story admitted to being paid by the devil and yeah well and also like all these people that were accused but then you know admitted to witchcraft or you know whatever their official confession was you're right they probably had like a permanent kind of dark spot on them and they were not probably accepted back in the community obviously they probably had to go move somewhere restart their life somehow yeah which it's not like the colonies were a giant place no i'm like you were kind of limited and it's just not like you could hop in your car and drive to the next town over you know it's like you had to find a horse get on the horse and go somewhere else yeah so I don't know. My hope is that maybe she was able to get on a ship and go home to Barbados or back to yeah. the West Indies um, and find family or something. Uh, I don't know. But it's really interesting to me that she is such a like major character in the Salem Witch Trials for this like 10-month period. But nobody really knows that much about her. People don't know. Yeah. We don't really know where she was born, where she came from, where her story oh. started. And we don't know where it ends. Which I think is really interesting. Um, and in my research, I found this woman who's a French woman named, I think, Marie or Mary Condé wrote a book about like fictionalizing her life story to Tuba's life story. And I want to read it now because I'm curious about how she imagines it, where she imagines it to start and to end. Because she gives her a whole life, basically, in this story. But yeah, it's kind of up to everyone's imaginations of what happened after this but just crazy to me that she could play such a huge role in this whole mass hysteria that happened and then just totally disappear from the record altogether yeah that's Um, insane that there's just no other information about her yeah yeah so that's her story oh good story thank you for for telling us about (laughs) tituba yeah and that really kicked off the whole salem witch trial hysteria that happened and i know you you are going to kind of take it from here and go to the other end of it. Yes. Really round it out yes. nicely. Yeah, no. So I will be talking about Martha Corey, um, who is kind of thought to be one of the last women um, that was hung in the Salem Witch Trials. And I, I can't say like for sure she was the last woman, but her, you know, sorry, spoiler alert, she was executed. But her kind of group of quote unquote witches that she was with that was executed was the last executions in the trials so who was born martha panon and like you you know not a lot of records um it was thought that she was born somewhere in between 1611 and 1620 um in new england exact date and location is unknown um so martha had an illegitimate mixed race son um who was named benoit or i also saw it written as benjamin in some places who was thought to have either an african or native american father and so again his birth year was kind of not exactly sure when that was but it was about 20 years before she was killed um so people think it's about like 1677 is a year i saw um but interesting that is that would put her in her late 50s And so obviously, you know, being unmarried and having a mixed race child at that time definitely put a damper on her reputation. And, you know, her son lived with her and her, you know, I'll talk about her husband's, but lived with her and her husband's at certain times. So like people knew who he was and she kind of just, you know, went on living her life and kind of ignored the the haters a little bit with that. You mentioned like she would have been a lot older when she had yeah. her son like in her 50s do you think it's possible that he wasn't her son 
Do you think it's possible she took him in? That was another thought I had that maybe like she was just protecting him somehow. It is noted that she got married and had another son in her 60s. Oh. So maybe she was just kind of a biological wonder or we just have her birth year really wrong. But she was thought to be in her 70s during the witch trials, um, which is kind of our only note. So again, dates, it just might be wrong. But based on what I read, it's yeah, she had kids in her 50s and 60s. Hop off, girly. Which is interesting. So, like, maybe she was a witch. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Martha married Henry Rich in 1684 and had her second son named Thomas Rich. Um, so her husband passed away a couple years later. And then a few years after that, she got remarried um, to a farmer named Giles Corey. And that was in 1690. Um, so just a, a couple things about Giles. So Martha was his third wife. And Giles actually had... A bit of a troubled past himself. Um, he was actually convicted of murdering one of his farmhands a couple years prior. And um, he was found guilty, um, but he only had to pay a fine for his crime. So a lot of people thought he like bribed his way out of it. And both of them kind of had this slightly dark past. However, they're both like pretty respected members of the church. Like they were godly people it is kind of noted that martha had a reputation for her regular attendance of church um and i also saw a note that it was also widely known that they would bicker often which i thought was kind of funny (laughs) gotta remember jude like murder was only the third no of course yeah like fourth i mean like as long as someone was you know being blasphemous who cares this is a little fine for murdering someone but exactly he was doing witchcraft so right he was sorry pay a fine and so um when the witch trials began in this in um 1692 martha and giles were like some of the first people to go to these examinations um pretty soon after martha started being pretty vocal about her doubts of the legitimacy of the claims um and you know unfortunately that that didn't fare well for her and her Husband was even trying to attend one of the examinations and Martha hid his saddle so he couldn't ride. And so actions like this, people were like, oh, she's trying to impede these trials or like help witches or stop them. And actually a woman that you mentioned, um, Anne Putnam Jr., um, was the first person who accused Martha Corey of being a witch. And he said that Martha's spirit had attacked her. You know, at the time, despite, you know, having her checkered past and the so-called like sympathy for these witches this was the first time that like a member of the church and she was pretty respected like it was the first time someone of her status had been accused so people were pretty surprised but no one like stood to her defense um and you know slowly people started believing that she could be a witch uh but before any like formal accusation was filed um two local men edward putnam and ezekiel Cheever decided to, like, investigate these accusations that Ann Putnam Jr. had brought forward. On March 2nd, 1692, they tried to see if they could corroborate Ann's story by saying, they're like, okay, we're going to go to Ann's house and ask her what Martha's spirit was wearing. And then we're going to go to Martha's house, and if she's wearing the same outfit, she's a witch. (laughs) So that was, like, their big investigative idea. That was their plan. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, but how... how why was this yes. a good solution? Because how is a how is Anne supposed to control when she saw, like Martha's spirit or whatever it was, and also, what? Like, yeah, I know it's it's it's. I know I'm like, how is this the best test? They're like these guys are like, okay, yeah, we have this plan. We're gonna find this witch, and she's is all gonna be based on her outfit. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, I wonder have. Oh, yeah. outfits I was about time. to say maybe she just has like her cartoon character outfit that she wears all the time <laughs> yeah, then you would think character. that like if Anne had seen her just ever then she would know what she would she know wearing. what she was wearing yeah that's a great point yeah but unfortunately they got to Anne's house and Anne was like well she actually blinded me so I couldn't see but they're like you know what? that's like, convenient Anne. I know so convenient Anne but they were like, you know what? We're just going to go visit Martha anyways and try to talk to her. So this interaction of these two men going to visit Martha is actually pretty well documented in a in the Book of Legal Executions of Massachusetts. <laughs> so it's I won't read the whole thing, but um, you can read about this whole interaction. But in summary, 
they showed up and she's like, I know why you're here. And her tone was annoyingly smug. And she delivered the bombshell saying, but did she tell you what clothes I have on? And this time her tone was intolerable blend of smugness, contempt, and mockery. So as far as these two men were concerned, just by the fact that she knew why they were, what they were going to come ask her about her outfit, that she was a witch. Because how else could she possibly know what they were coming there for unless she had some supernatural ability to predict that or have like contact with Anne about why these men coming and no one thought to be like maybe just like tipped her off you know that was never under consideration people are like it had to be supernatural and that was kind of the main reason why she was arrested Arrested also this whole situation yeah arrested arrested this whole (laughs) yeah this whole situation just make like the way that they reported it Makes it sound like maybe they just didn't like the fact that she was kind of a confident, powerful woman in her own right. Yeah. Because the words they use, she was smug. She I know. Was condescending, whatever. Yeah. After this account, you started spreading. People were talking about it, hearing about it. Everyone was suddenly very, very suspicious of Martha. And really, no one came to Martha's defense. Um, And in fact, other afflicted girls, as they were called, started joining in on accusing Martha. A warrant was issued for her arrest on Saturday, March 19th in 1692. However, when the warrant was arrested, there wasn't enough time in the day to arrest her. (laughs) And since we are in, you know, Puritan New England, they couldn't arrest anyone on Sundays. So Martha had a free day to do whatever she wanted before she was arrested on Monday and went to church so just imagine this scene this woman everyone knows she's about to be arrested no one believes her and she walks into the local church dressed in her sunday best walks in and just sits there and pretends like nothing is wrong like what a power move this woman is is a power move and also a power Mm. move because it's kind of thought that like witches couldn't you know pray or like be involved in religious activities because it's like goes against their you know witchiness i guess um so that was yeah, quite the move that she did there, which I really respected. Yeah. Also, if I had one day before I knew I was going to be arrested, you would not find me in church. No shade to Martha. Yeah, either, no, no but... shade to Martha. Me neither. I would try to get out of town, maybe. But, right. um, you know, she, yeah. I mean, she was in her 70s at the time, too. So she was just kind of like the old church That's lady. True. And she's like, I, I got to go out, you know, being true to myself, I guess. Everyone who was in town was, like, shocked that she showed up and so I think that also added to like you were saying like she's kind of this outspoken other woman that really didn't care about what other people thought and I think that also added to it and you know her smugness (laughs) however she was arrested that Monday interesting enough so many people wanted to come watch her like pre-trial examination that they actually had to move to a different building pretty much her whole examination people were accusing her of lying they really pretty much immediately brought up that interaction that she had with those two men at her house her attitude as like evidence against her and using this like how could she possibly know that we are going to ask what outfit she was wearing and she was also accused of having a familiar a yellow bird Tituba and, did talk about a canary, so... Yeah, um, and she was indicted on two counts of witchcraft and was moved to jail. And now after this happened, her husband, Giles, was, like, really swept up in the hysteria, and, like, he even gave testimony against his wife and was saying stuff like she wasn't praying anymore, which, again, if you can't say the prayer, then that means you are a witch, apparently. And so he, yeah, provided testimony against her. Um. But pretty soon after, I think she was just like so swept up in the hysteria, he kind of came to his senses and he tried to retract his testimony. Um, But of course, that made him look very guilty and he was arrested for witchcraft as well. That's also kind of wild because now in the U.S. there's all these laws that you cannot testify against a spouse. Yeah. Because of incriminating evidence, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that he did both. He testified and then later he was like, just kidding oh no (laughs) yeah I know which is yeah crazy that all it took was him just trying to defend his wife to get him arrested and 
you know, subsequently yeah. killed. And I think that goes points to the group think too that um, his immediate response was to testify against her and say yeah. like, yeah, she did all of this because he just got swept. I know, it. and it's, it's like I, it's yeah, further evidence of just like this group, you know, hysteria of it all. It's he just really got swept up, and like that was multiple accounts of people saying like he got just really into it at first, and then like pretty quickly was like, oh wait, 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 what am I doing? So at yeah, least he kind of came to a sense at the end, but. I guess, so, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so Martha's trial was, like, very delayed. Um, It was got thought to be, it was just going to be a harder case to win, even though, like, I do wonder. I'm like, these trials weren't very just, obviously. So how how is this a hard case to win? But, you know, that's what it was thought happened. Um, But, of course, as the case was being um delayed, more girls and women came forward um, testifying against Martha and you know, talking about having spect- these spectral visions of Martha pinching them, choking them, biting them, and having visions of yellow birds nursing from between Martha's fingers. That's so, wild. Yeah. Like a hummingbird in a flower, but... I know, I'm like, in between Ooh. your fingers. Uh, yeah, I don't like that. Um, yeah, and also, this happened in, in other trials as well, not just Martha's, but um, all of these girls that were afflicted girls as they as they were called or like the accusers um would like move really weird every time that martha moved and they were trying to make it look like they were like under her control so like these girls were like twitching out in court too which also added to like the spectacle of it all that's interesting yeah that also makes me wonder if there is something going on like you were talking about that fungus earlier it It makes me wonder but it was like so timed like, it was supposed yeah. to be, like, every time Martha, like, moved her arm, mm. like, the girls would be, like, you it's know. It's fake, probably. Yeah, so it seems, like, a little, a little fake, but yeah. who, who knows. Yeah. So, on September 8th in 1692, Martha was found guilty and sentenced to death. So, going back to her husband, Giles, for a moment. So, at this time, he was in prison, too. He's been in prison for witchcraft, and um, during those times, people who, like, wouldn't take a plea would have weights pressed on their chest i know this part's a little gross so <laughs> but they have weights placed on them and so he was basically tortured to death and was like pressed and it took two days um for him to die but it was known that he was like calling out to add more weights the whole time so it would like kill him quicker which is like quite the gruesome oh, death um but the fact that his death was so gruesome was part of the reasons that the trials came to an end there's multiple reasons, but just the fact that this was, like, such a gruesome death. Um, yeah, people started to be like, wait, wait, what are we doing here? Yeah, that's a rough one. I always thought yeah. burning to death sounded like the worst way to go. Yeah, but Being squished to death. Pressed to death. I know. And, like, I won't give the details, but I, I was reading some documents of, like, what his body looked like. And it, it just Ugh. truly sounds like a terrible way to go. Yeah, but- not about that. Anyway, so on September 22nd, uh, Martha was brought to the execution site on Proctor's Ledge, along with seven other convicted witches, and was hung to death. That, Like I said, this was like the last group of of hangings in the Salem Witch Trials. Um, and like shortly after that, um, the governor of Massachusetts' wife was actually accused. And once she was accused, he was like, oh, whoa, 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 okay, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so that, um, you know, put a stop to them and like he paused paused all of the further trials and they also banned spectral evidence as you kind of mentioned shortly after that and slowly started to die down and eventually all prisoners released in may of of 1693 eventually massachusetts legislature passed a bill clearing all the names of the salem witch trial victims and giles and martha Corey were named on this bill and their families were awarded some restitution i don't know how much i doubt it was a lot but yeah, that was the story of Martha Corey, who is now one of the last people killed in the Salem Witch Trials. That's crazy. Yeah. It's all of this research that uh, we both did is just kind of crazy to me in that it, they were accusing these women in their 60s and 70s, yeah. first of all, for the most part. And then they were hanging them if they denied it. That's I know. And honestly, the the part of that is so confusing to me is like, I think you can, ex- you know, 
it's pretty obvious to tell that it's like inherently sexist towards these women who didn't have husbands or were like these outcasts or gossips, you know, Um, basically anything that was like not acceptable as to be a woman at that time, you were like, had your had fingers pointed at you. But it's just interesting that they took the accusations of these young girls. And so I do wonder, I'm like, was someone behind them kind of telling them what to do? Or were like the young girls so swept up in the hysteria of it all too? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think kind of maybe both. Like, I think maybe some of both. Because I read about um, Betty and Abigail. Their first confessions came because they were under so much pressure from the local magistrates to name their bewitchers. And that's when they singled out those three women. Which are probably just women that they knew their names. And And they were were kind of outcasts. Right. And someone, maybe their dad or somebody just told them who to say. Yeah. But then I think you're totally right in that as time went on, everybody just got swept into this. And mm-hmm. this hysteria gripped them because they were hearing this testimony about the devil and all these horrible things going on. And they just got totally swept away in it, which yeah. is just nuts to me. But it's i mean it happened a lot more throughout history this i know these weren't the only, only witch trials yeah well i guess we should we end it is do you think any of them were actually witches i mean i don't really know if i believe in like witches necessarily <laughs> out there in the world um so i think probably not mm-hmm. but i also think if there are actually witches they probably wouldn't be caught I agree. Yeah. Because, like, I, I mean, I feel like we'll we'll learn over the course of this podcast. I don't know. I can't believe a lot of this stuff. But do I don't think that there were actually any witches that were being killed. And, yeah, I agree. Yeah. If there were witches in the area at that time, I do think they'd be smart enough to not get caught. Right. And if they were, they probably would be able to escape from prison and or survive a hanging. So. Yeah. That's true. I don't know. But. Wow. I don't know. Do you think there are real witches in, in the universe? In the world? Like, I, I think so. I just feel like there's so much we can't explain. And I don't I don't think it's like what we think of, of a traditional witch, but I feel like there's yeah. a lot to like with spirituality and I feel like there's some really interesting accounts of like voodoo and stuff. Yeah, I just I just don't know what to believe. I think there's just so much unknown. I'd I have a hard time just ruling anything out really firmly. I'm totally with you. I'm not sure I believe in like Harry Potter kind of witches. Oh, no, no, no. Necessarily. But, like, but yeah, I totally am with, with you that I yeah. think there's a lot of power in spirituality. And there's obviously a lot of really traditional things like voodoo or other very traditional kind of practices throughout time mm-hmm. that have like power, have yeah. worked and have seen, we've seen some evidence of that. So absolutely. Well, interesting. Yeah. Obviously, there was a lot of other stories. During the Salem Witch Trials, over 200 so, people were accused yeah, and 20 were executed. 20 so there's a lot of stories we didn't tell here today, but these are just Absolutely. two that we thought were important yeah, this was and interesting and wanted to Really share. just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much information that can be found out about this. And, you know, if a detail we said wasn't accurate, forgive us. Yeah, we did well, our best. We did our best. <laughs> it's our first try here today. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our first episode. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can find us at Woes and Wonders. Um, Instagram is the same handle. And just let us know if there's anything else you want to listen. And thank you for joining us. Yeah. Leave us a nice review. Please only leave nice reviews. (laughs) If you think we did a horrible job, just don't tell us. Just don't listen to us again. Just don't listen. Yeah. 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 Later, Later, witches. witches.